out. Away, good start by Schultz. So from the outside we have Francie, Pettigrew, Schultz has gone away well. Horton's also well away from uh, Jamaica, Moncur, Machkoviak, Albishi and Millazar on the inside. Machkoviak's been a non-starter. It looks like Schultz trying to take out the race. Horton is in second position with Moncur taking it up. He's really made up the stake of the third 100 is the all-important 100 metres here. So Horton in front, but uh, coming hit him on the, on the inside is Moncur. The man from the Bahamas just leads as they turn for home on the outside. Schultz can't come on for the moment. Here's Horton coming on the outside. Gregory Horton can't get Moncur. And Avard Moncur kicks on the inside. Avard Moncur wins for the Bahamas in 44-64. Second Schultz, third Horton. And a great victory from the man from the Bahamas. One of the quickest this year. Wins gold in Edmonton. There we've got Moncur, the new world champion he won the ncaa's he was a semi-finalist at the olympic games around 44 89 to make it through to the final it's only the second time the bahamas have won an individual gold medal at these world championships troy kemp won the high jump in 1995 their relay teams have been magnificent but the first time on the track the first track gold medal for the bahamas goes to avard moncur so the credit belongs to the man actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood hello everyone and welcome back to the vitruvian man podcast i'm your host zach shankin uh today i'm joined by a very very special guest who i'll get into in a moment um you can follow along the journey of the podcast at vitruvian gentleman on instagram at myself at Z-D-S-C-H-E-N-K-E-N on Instagram. Uh, DM me your thoughts, questions, future guests, and any thoughts like that. Um, but yeah, as, as a bit of an introduction, today I'm joined with uh, Avard Moncur. Avard was born in Nassau, Bahamas, Bahamas, and went on to become a prolific track and field athlete specializing in the 400 meter, competing at the world championship and Olympic level. His list of athletic accolades spans almost the entirety of his Wikipedia page, which I encourage everyone to check for yourselves. Included in this list are one World Championship bronze medal, two World Championship silver medals, two World Championship gold medals, and an Olympic bronze medal finish in the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney, Australia. Avard also holds a Bahamas national record for the time in the 400, which to date has only been matched, not surpassed. Avard continues to be involved in track, offering coaching to the track and field team, here at Georgia Tech, where he works full-time as the academic program coordinator for the biomedical engineering department, of which I graduated. Um, Avard, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks for making the time yeah. out of your day. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, James was our introduction. My, mm. my current boss um, mm. mentioned, when, you know, when I started doing the podcast, he's like, I, I think I have somebody who has a pretty uh, <laughs> interesting story worth telling, so... Um, definitely get him on and so I appreciate you kind of carving the time out of your day to no problem at all on. I always uh, like the opportunity it's such a unusual story um, but um, definitely something we're never given the opportunity to like to talk about yeah that's awesome um, so yeah I guess as, as far as that story goes I kind of want to start from the beginning I guess chronologically so born born in the Bahamas yeah, so, um, yes. How many years did you spend there, and, and what was that kind of upbringing like, and how did you transition, and when did you transition to the U.S.? 
So basically, um, I came from, I wouldn't say, I, was, I didn't consider myself poor. I had everything that I needed, but just somewhat humble beginnings. I lived with my grandmother and my mom um, in her house. And um, when I started, uh, when I went over to elementary school, um, I had a teacher. She was my, she's more so a librarian or whatever. And um, we would have our sports day, and she, was, she saw that I had some potential. Um, and so she started a track club. Uh, we call it the Roadrunners Track Club. And uh, she didn't have a big bus or anything. She had a Nissan Sunny, which is okay. a very small car. Yeah. But fortunately, we were all pretty small kids at the time. I wasn't six months yeah. at the time. Blossomed <laughs> to the yes. NFL frame that you have now. So she would literally, uh, and she's from Pittsburgh um, and uh, had beautiful blonde long hair. And so she would just basically put 10 kids in that car and basically um, take us to various facilities so that we'd have opportunity to train and um, also just be exposed to the sport. And that's where my track and field career started. So I guess that proclivity for sport was initially seen, um, you know, by others and then kind of like pushed you in that direction? Or did you always feel like you enjoy it was it was it something you pursued passionately because you were interested in it or was it like hey I, I really have something going here like let me see where I can take it when I was when I my first uh, introduction into the Olympics was in 1988 I had no clue what it was but it was very very intriguing to me my mm -hmm. aunt um, she would basically uh, force us to sit down and watch the Olympics she yeah. wanted she said this is this is a very special moment this is happen every year all the time and so I remember seeing Carl Lewis and Flojo and all these big names. I didn't really understand what that meant in the grand scheme of things. I was probably like five or six. But it was something that kind of sparked something in me. And I think it was 92 Olympics. Once again, she forced us to sit down and watch it. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, you know, this is such an interesting, you know, um, activity that people get involved in. And it seems like a big deal. It's all over the news. Um, 1992 is when we won our first, the Bahamas won our first Olympic medal mm. with Frank Rutherford. Um, and so he was, there was this huge celebration. Yeah. And I think that kind of sparked something in me to know that, wow, this, this is honorable. This is something that, you know, you can really get great recognition for. Um, but it wasn't until later on when I found out there were opportunities to get a, a college education through scholarships and so mm. forth um, that I think I was really intrigued by it um, because we didn't have the means to send me to college so that was if I, it was going to happen it was going to be through some type of sports or something like that so I took it very seriously um, in 1996 was when I went to my first well 95 was when I went to my first international competition um, and I just didn't take it very seriously I just thought it was like oh you know um I'm just going for the experience. I'll just show up and run. <laughs> yeah. But I ended up winning the Caribbean championships. There you go. And so it was like, wow, you know, these guys might not be very good. You know? <laughs> or vice versa. Or I am pretty or good. Or I am pretty, very, very good. And I just saw so much things were happening in my life. Before, I just always felt like a fly on the wall, mm. just watching everybody live. And all of a sudden, everyone was watching me. Mm. It was just like... I did this, he, he, he did this, and he didn't have a lot of experience, he didn't have a lot of coaching and so forth, and you know, everyone was now talking about what could possibly become if I were to really take it seriously. And how old were you when you won that championship? I was 16. 16? Yes. And so if, I assume from there now that you're in this kind of center stage, people are like, okay, there's a lot of potential here, clearly a very gifted athlete. Um, 
did you continue to train in the Bahamas preparing for collegiate exposure? I assume winning a champion, an international championship puts you on a lot of coaches' like maps and radar. Well, at that point, it was like I was still didn't see college as I was just trying to get through high school. Sure. I went to a public high school, um, and um, most of my teammates were went to private high schools. And just being around them, they say who you associate yourself with, with sometimes can really determine how you, what direction you're going to go. Mm-hmm. And that is very true because I heard them talking about college opportunities, professional track and field, also the various levels of track and field. Um, what I did was significant, but it was on one of the lower levels of what it could be. Um, I think I started asking questions, well, what are the levels? You had the... Uh, the Caribbean, then you had Central America and the Caribbean, then you had the Pan American, which also involved parts of the United States, and then you had like world championship, world youth, and those kind of things. So once I start to realize, like, well, I'm not on that level, but I wouldn't mind being there, mm-hmm. that's when I think I officially um, started to get a little serious and started to get in the training program that was going to get me prepared for that. And was that a training program facilitated through your school, or you stepped into like a, a running like club, something like that? Yeah, I joined a track and field club. Um, the first one was with, with, with the lady I told you about, Diana Thompson. That's mm-hmm. her name. Um, she started a smaller track club, but it was more so for younger kids. So, and then I, a lot of my training was more so. Um, I didn't. I did it on my own. You know what she would do? She would kind of create a newsletter. Um, just because, you know, the Sunny can only go so far, you know, and plus she had her own family, but she really has sacrificed a lot. Um, so she would write a newsletter and she would just tell us how to measure one lamppole to another one. She said one, one lamppole to another lamppole is 30 meters. So if you put three of them together and add a little bit more, then you get 100 meters. Mm. And then she would, te- like, I would walk to the grocery store. So she would teach me how to break that into intervals. And mm. that's how I would get a, um, an actual full workout in. Wow. So all of a sudden I was in this track club and it was no longer doing it on my own. I was a coach, there was structure, there were athletes who were just as good. And so I had to change my mindset, but it definitely took me to another level. Um, it just gave me um, maybe more discipline and more committed to what I ultimately wanted to do. As you're kind of pursuing that personal level of development and growth, did you feel like I'm just curious about the mindset. Like when, obviously, you know, you see the Bahamas on the TV um, competing for Olympic gold and and you're like, I envision myself one day being there, like a bit of that visualization. But Mm -hmm. from that early age, was it, was it more so like always with that in the back of your mind as as kind of the goal? Or was it very much like one thing at a time? Like I want to win the first, you know, Pan Am championship and then I want to get a college scholarship. And like, how was that kind of mindset and journey? So after, um, I finally, uh, 95 was the year, I call it my breakout year, where I won the Caribbean Championship. The next year, uh, I got the opportunity to go to Sydney, Australia for the World Junior Championships. Um, it's my first time on a whole other continent. Yeah. I travel within the Caribbean, but never, it's like that flight was like 24 hours. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my God, are we going to ever reach? <laughs> um, but um, then I saw all these like athletes who... And they were with their coaches, and they just seemed so much more fit. I was so skinny. I'm not, probably don't look like that now, yeah. but you know, I was so skinny. And the drills that they were doing, and I was just like, wow, this is like a whole other world. Um, I, didn't, I didn't make it to the finals there, um, but I just know, knew that, you know what? The, they have access to stuff that I don't have access to. If I 
have, get access to this somehow mm-hmm. and apply myself, I think at some point I can definitely compete on that level. Um, and so I think that was the moment when I also started to get contacts from colleges in mm-hmm. order to offer scholarships. And it was so weird, that recruiting process, because I was just like, how did you find me? You know, who gave you my number kind of thing? But, you know, they were doing their research. And, you know, um, obviously recruiters, um, they find a way to get in contact with the people that they want to get in contact with. And they did. And I would see these huge packages with uh, media guides and everything. So I knew that there was like um, there was a great world out there. That was definitely something um, that I was eventually going to be a part of. Uh, I events I started to go to UGA. Um, oh, but really? Event, okay. Yeah, but it uh, I didn't for whatever reason it just didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some things that I needed to take care of back in the Bahamas, so I had what, you, what most people call a gap year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of my coaches from high school eventually ended up going to Auburn University, Henry Roll. Um, and I spent a little time at Morehouse for one year, and then he eventually recruited me to go to Auburn University. Interesting. And during that gap year, were you maintaining that training and was still associated with the club, or kind of was it very much focused on, I got to take care of what I got to take care of here at home, and then I'll get back on it? Yeah, so I just, it was training because we had what we call this, the Pan Am Games, which was held in Havana, Cuba. Um, so I knew that I wanted to do well there. Um, and with other regional meets and so forth. And I saw myself um, just competing really well, but I also had a goal inside because I graduated high school. So I was just like, okay, well, I'm, I'm not ready to work yet. I right. think the thing that I went to, what we call the labor department, um, they call it the Ministry of Labor in the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. And I went to, I dressed really nice and I went um, there and um, I was like, I'm looking for a job. And she sent me some box cutting company or something like that and I went one day and I just was like this is not what I want to do (laughs) so I know I had to pull my britches off and just you know focus on everything that I needed to make sure that I was able to get access to a college uh, education Um, so that one year I was able to place uh, I was ranked really high as a junior in the world um, and then I eventually ended up at Morehouse and at Auburn University and then once you were at Auburn, uh, obviously eventually receiving your degree from there, how were those years at competing as a collegiate athlete? How do you think that that was, would you say that the college competition, like stateside, was more or less than you were seeing at the kind of the international Pan Am level? Like how, how did that stack up and how did, how did you continue to use that development to propel yourself to eventually get to the place where you're competing world and Olympic level? So it's it's access to resources, you know, it's like, you know, we had a track that was owned by the school, they gave you equipment, they uh, gave you access to, the only thing I needed to show up to do was really just be do well in school, Mm -hmm. you know, especially in particular when I went to Auburn University, I walked through the door and they handed me a bag, which had never really happened, everything that I'd purchased, I mean, everything from high school I had to purchase on my own and we had limited means. So now you have this situation where they're just like, show up to practice, go to school, don't worry about anything else. We have trainers for you, we have, here's your uniform, don't worry about shoes, here's a few pairs of spikes. It's just like, I felt like a spoiled kid all of a sudden. Um, And so having access to that really was life-changing for me. A lot of people probably had access through their parents really supporting them that way. And not that my parents didn't, but we didn't have as much means as many. Um, um, So, all of a sudden I had everything that I needed to be successful and it showed because the very first year I was ranked 
uh, number five in the NCAA. And then my junior, senior year, I was the NCAA champion. That's amazing. So, um, Do you feel like once getting to the States, obviously kind of the perspective is different. You have everything at your, at your fingertips. Um, did you find difficulty sometimes? Was there ever a point where you were getting distracted by kind of the American college lifestyle? Like were there friends drawing you away or was it very <laughs> much like I'm here for a reason, I'm going to be a world champion and like that's what I'm here to do? So track and field, like a lot of times – I guess I had a different mindset, too. Um, I understood that this was my opportunity, and I couldn't afford to waste it. There was no being lost and trying to find myself. I was like, this was the find, and I had to take advantage of it. Um, but also, like, it's a very uh, – you're a student athlete as well. You were. It's extremely busy schedule, and time yeah. management is a huge part of you being able to balance all of that and also being extremely successful. So I didn't feel like I had the time to do. Like I was like some people who say, "Oh, we're going to party." I say, "Where do you find the energy?" Yeah, I got homework to do. I got to sleep. Yes. Yeah. So by the time I'm done with practice, I get uh, assignments that are due. Got to get those done, and then we're also traveling on the weekend. So it's like I really didn't have any time for extra stuff or yeah. hanging with friends. My friends were my teammates. Mm -hmm. So it was like a fraternity. I guess last the word because you have a females team too. Um, but it's like you're indoctrinated into this group of people and they have very similar interests, very similar goals. Um, and also, like, even now you find that they're helpful to your life in, in other ways in terms of uh, making contacts with uh, opportunities that become available. So, um, you know, yeah, it definitely was kind of weird fraternity type scenario that I was kind of indoctrinated into. So I didn't need some people did it. I still went into sororities and stuff, but I didn't feel like I needed it. That's awesome. And so as you're kind of Climbing to the top of the NCAA rankings, when did, you know, the Olympics and the World Games come into the frame? Like, was it your coaches saying, like, hey, I want you to prep for this? And what was the first year you kind of transitioned to that com competition level? Okay. So the pinnacle, like, when I knew that I, I wanted to compete in the Olympics was 1996. And the person that kind of sparked that, I was watching the 200-meter finals, and Michael Johnson had broken the real record. And... I didn't know, I watched everything else and it was fine. I'd seen Donovan Bailey break the record. It didn't mean anything to me. I'd seen other things happen, but um, we also got our Bahamas four by one female team. They got a silver medal at, at that Olympics. But the thing that kind of triggered me the most was seeing Michael Johnson run almost 18 seconds in the 200 meters. And that's when I knew that I wanted to do it. But in 2000, which was my junior year, I was able to race him. And wow. I have a picture of me racing. If you go on my Instagram, you'll see there's a picture of me and him running together. And I just remember, I was like, you know, you can imagine a young kid yeah. from the Bahamas and now you're in the same heat as somebody that you idolized. Yeah. And I was just like, wow, Michael Johnson, you know, I watched you break the real record. And he was like, oh, good. Did you, did you make it to the finals? And I was like, no, but I got to run with you. And he said, oh, that's cool. And that was all that mattered to me. Wow. I made it to the semifinals and I knew that if I'm running with Michael Johnson, I'm not scared of anyone. Yeah. So when I came back the next year, it was like I was fearless. That's so cool. It's, yeah. I feel like that's like when, you know, you see in the NBA, like Kobe enters the league and he wants to go right <laughs> at Michael Jordan. That's kind yes. of such a cool experience. Uh, did you ever like approach him um, from a perspective of like trying to gain any sort of wisdom, advice or anything like that? Or was it strictly like... I'm here to compete. Like I am on your level. Like so, I, after at '96 when he I, he written a book called Chasing the Dragon. Mm -hmm. I read the book, and so 
uh, from that book, I gained so much information in terms of his training regimen, how he actually approached the, um, the 400 in terms of breaking it down into the four parts that his coach taught them. And from then, I had been applying, you know, obviously you'd have to build up your strength and, and get your training to the point where you can actually execute each portion of that race. But once I was able to, um, when I was fit enough, that's exactly how I ran my races. Mm. So even though my coach was kind of helping me to kind of create those race modules, I think that book was really the catalyst in terms of me, like having the mindset of how to approach the 400. It wasn't just a run. It was like a strategic approach to making it the best race that I could possibly have while I was in it. That's interesting. And so now, now you're transitioning um, into these world game settings. And so track, I, I suppose up until this point, had kind of been a year round sport, right? You're running mm -hmm. different, even what, so there's the NCAA season, but there's also races in the summer and, and all yeah. these other things. But as far as Olympic games, you know, like you said there, it doesn't happen all the time. It's, it's kind of this mm -hmm. every four years you get to test yourself against the best. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious from the mindset of an Olympian, is it all four of those years? Are you completely as dialed as you are throughout or is it you kind of gradually peak and then that last year as you approach the games is where you're most focused um, or is it mostly you're just kind of running other races staying in, in top shape you really take it one year at a time and that's why um, when they approach it'll say you have the fastest time in the world this year because each year is like significantly different someone could have lost fitness because maybe they take too much vacation or injuries and other variables that kind of cost those uh, setbacks or, um, you know, you can just continue to build on a fitness that you had a previous year. Um, the whole concept is that you condition so you can train, you train so you can compete, you know. So conditioning is obviously not going to be the same every year, um, especially if you take a lot of time off or if you've had a setback because of injury. But because of the Olympics being all the way in September in 2000, um, going into the next off season and also track season, my fitness level was a little bit more significant and more advanced. And so going through each phase of preparation was seamless and more uh, intense. And I was miles ahead of everyone. I just raced Michael Johnson. <laughs> so it was just like, and plus it was September. We typically start off season training around October. So once I started in October, it's like everyone was starting here. I was already still mm. in 44 shape. Right. So I, I could approach training in a completely different way than most people that I, that I started at that point. That's interesting. Uh, so it's like each is, is each year that builds up to four years. I think the, the year prior to or the year of you tend to understand that this is your opportunity. Yeah. Um, and then you like, well, you do you, you, you kind of dot all your I's and cross all your T's more intensely than you probably would in other years. So that last year, it's very much like a mental like lock in. Yeah. Very little little wiggle room. You're trying to get every variable correct. Yes. This um, is not the time to be mental. <laughs> yeah. As you as you kind of approach um, competition, Brooks asked, um, "How do you? How does your diet change, or does it change at all? Um, are you trying to keep it consistent over those four years? Like, I know what fuels me. I know how to compete. Or is it okay? I need I need to cut down like weight. Do you carry extra weight in the off season and mm -hmm. stuff like that? 
So the way the 400 meter works, like if it's a pretty solid program, I mean, if you go through the whole year into physiology and all that yeah. stuff and you go down to the correct energy systems to kind of reproduce energy, mm -hmm. I mean, you're using a lot of fuel yeah. and burning a lot of fat in order to kind of get your energy as you go through those very difficult workouts. Mm -hmm. um, as a matter of fact, that's how I knew if a program was working for me. Like if I was still heavy, I was like, well, that means I'm, probably not getting what I need from this program the training yeah but if I'm like losing weight I know I'm tapping into the right energy systems because most quarter miles are pretty lean um, so if I'm not leaning out then I know that something is not correct I mean diet really wasn't a big issue for me because if the training was right I was definitely be able to use various systems to kind of for fuel for the most part so right. like swimmers who yeah. eat a lot i had to have a lot of calories mm -hmm. in order to compensate for the amount of calories that i was burning and were you working with a nutritionist or was it kind of just i know my body i'm just going to eat what i've been kind of using um so i did study nutrition uh, a part of my degree program yeah. so i once i took that class i kind of had idea what i needed to eat and what i did not yeah. need to eat plus my mom didn't we didn't the typical Bahamian dish was a lot of fried foods and stuff like that. We didn't do a lot of fried foods, and we pretty much stuck to like chicken, lean meat for the most part, chicken and fish. Mm. So I wasn't out there eating like these really high, high, um, high fat, high calorie diets anyway. Pretty much pretty leveled. Okay. Um, so when I did start to take a diet, I made a decision. For three years, I didn't go to the chips aisle. <laughs> I thought people say, how did you do that? I mean, that's like the major. I, was, I just made the decision yeah. that I wasn't going to go through there, and I wasn't going to eat certain junk food, processed food. So most of my food were cooked by me yeah. or my mom. Um, and, you know, just really try to make sure that I make the best, because that's a really big part of recovery. And throughout that window where you're in college, graduating college, competing into kind of the Olympic and world scale levels, at this point, has your family joined you in the States or are they still back in the Bahamas and you visit them? So all my family is from the Bahamas um, and I would go home very often, like every, at least two or three times a year. Okay. Um, but, you know, once I started going over to Europe, it became a little difficult, but we talked almost constantly. Okay. I was laughing with um, my stepmom, um, also my mom was like, we, I think... Whatever um, modality to communicate is out there. Right now we're using WhatsApp. Yeah. But if you had like Skype or whatever, we have some kind of device that I used throughout the years while I was over here. Cool. When I first came to the United States, I was on a pay phone. And now I can use my cell phone and call yeah. for free through WhatsApp. So That's awesome. And you know probably all the other things that we went through. Yeah. Um, but they've been a huge support to my career. Just, um, just pushing me forward, you know understanding that this is something special for our family. So they wanted to definitely 100% support me with it. Did you ever, I guess, a more personal question, do you plan to have them come, like bring them to the States or do you ever want to return and like raise your family back in the Bahamas? So I, I, I actually just became a United States citizen this Congrats. year. Um, my mom unfortunately died in okay. 2020 from the, during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's probably one of the biggest challenges that I've had to deal with. But my brothers and sisters pretty much have their own life. Um, I'm, I have some cousins here, but I think none of them are going to. There's a different vibe in the Bahamas compared to definitely. Here, and I think they're going to stay there. How would you how would you compare that? And like, why have you chosen to stay in the States as far as like the different vibe? Like quantify that. Um, I, I guess I just 
kind of spent my adult life here and it just felt comfortable uh, in terms of the career that I wanted to get into, which was I eventually ended up in education, which is how I got here at Georgia Tech. I figured that um, this would give me the best opportunity just in terms of uh, the amount of universities that are available here to work at and so forth. And also, um, you know, just the varied opportunities that would be available because if you had that, that amount of um, you know, schools that were available to you that you could work at. So I started at Savannah College of Art and Design and then eventually ended up here at Georgia Tech. Mm. Um, and even with that, there was just seems like a lot more choices. We do have a University of the Bahamas. Um, I, just, I just felt more comfortable here than just moving back home. Yeah, you absolutely. Know. And now you married, family... That's the single, you know. Single, okay. <laughs> yes. Well, anyone out there watching, <laughs> got a tall, handsome man right here. If you're, if you're curious, uh, interesting. Yeah. But circling back to the um, kind of preparation as you're heading towards the Olympic Games, um, Grace asked, "How does your how like what was your relationship with fear and doubt? And do you think that there was any um, room for that when competing? I know you kind of briefly mentioned a point. You said like there's no time for that mental. Like, did you just kind of step away from the mindset and say, I just need to be in my body and compete? How does how did you deal with fear, especially like, you know, you're a kid, you're now at that level and like you're looking you're in a stadium full of people looking at you, the gun goes off. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I I experienced it as a young athlete, but couldn't really describe it in terms of what I was able to do in terms of zoning out. A lot of athletes probably talk about that. But I think um, you know, Michael Johnson in his book was able to describe that in a way that I really understood um, mm. it's just being able to go into that I, he, I, I think he called, it, he called it a dark zone it's not dark to me but <laughs> it's just a very still place where nothing distracts you you just zoom out and, I, and, and for me you had the nervousness and everything that goes along with being, a part, being um, preparing for a major competition but once I got on the line I did have the ability to just like go into a space mentally to not think about what I didn't have, what I did have, who was in the race, and just like focus on those four parts of the race that were going to make me successful. And if I executed those the way that I needed to, then I would be successful in the race. Um, and just kind of go over with it for 400 meters, you know, you have uh, it's a full quarter mile, that's what most people know it as. But I break it down into four 100 meters. Mm -hmm. And the first one is like press out of the blocks, meaning I'm building up some velocity. But I have a whole lap to go, so I don't want to go at that intensity for the full lap. Right. So the back stretch is more so maintaining, but also getting into a form of relaxation, which means I'm not making any attempt to exert additional energy. And then because the 400 is more so a momentum race, I cannot stay in that relaxation form. So on the turn, it's like positioning, meaning pressing again so that you can build, use a centrifugal force coming off the curve and build up some more momentum so that once you come down to the straight, you're not coming into the straight trying to build momentum while you're fatigued, but all, but um, starting to use the momentum that you build off the turn mm. to kind of take you down into the home stretch. Kind of like a downhill. Yeah, just like fall exactly. And then the final part is pray, you know, pray you don't die, yeah. <laughs> you know. And at that point, you know, I always say no 400 meter is the same. Mm -hmm. You know, you just never know what the outcome is, is going to be. Um, you just hope that everything that you've done 
just comes together correctly in that last portion. Uh, most of the times it did, um, but there are a few times it just seems like a freight train. Sure, <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's just like I think any sport, you know, any it's whoever shows up on that game day. What team, what person. Um, it could be any amount of variables. How much um, do you think in – because I tip, I played team sports my whole life, so the mm-hmm. individual competition aspect is something that is somewhat foreign to me, but, like, now entering – I do um, jujitsu, and so like mm-hmm. under, understanding that one v one, it's like you versus one other competitor, and and I suppose the individual aspect of track, there's other racers, but it's like you and whoever the next closest guy mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Are you thinking at all about their performance? I know you're kind of like zoning out and just trying to be in your body and execute in the moment, but as far as I guess that anxiety, that pressure um, you put on yourself, are are you looking at the races like, can I beat me? Can yes. I beat my last time? It is. It's, uh, that was really the best way. Like my coach, sometimes he found that we found that it's better that I don't know as much about my competitors. Like some people want to know who ran what, yeah. what time did they run, how did they look, all that. For me, I um, just needed to know that I was going to run faster than I did, and if I felt confident, I felt like that was going to happen. Um, the good thing about the four hundred is that you like more so distance running and stuff like that. You how you can be impeded, your your progress in the race can be impeded by another runner. Mm. Like if they cut you and you get boxed in, I think they had the USA trials this past weekend, and I see a lot of people like probably didn't run as fast because you know the dynamics of the race probably didn't allow that. Whereas 400, you have one lane and that's all yours, and you can really focus more on the different parts of the race and not really be concerned as much about who's doing what. Mm. It is helpful because some people do help build the momentum of the race. Like if somebody goes hard, you can kind of like really be like, oh, you know, he's going a little hard. I may want to really focus on maintaining my pace and not really relax too much. So sometimes they help, but you still can focus on beating you as opposed to another person. And then um, for, I guess, for the Olympics, how does how does the Olympic race, just because it is that like pinnacle of sport, it's very like heavily advertised, how does that compare to the other championships you're involved in? And... Also, do you have any, I know the Olympic Village gets a lot of uh, attention every time the Olympics comes around for kind of crazy stories that go on. Do you have any Olympic Village stories that you want to tell? Um, well, my first Olympic story is like, you know, I think I was so, I was so young. I was 20, I was, 20 was young for me. I just was still clueless yeah. in my own world kind of thing. And I had no clue what inside of the stadium looked. I went in the stadium, but you see big old bent like benches and you don't really are like big old stadium seats and you don't think much of it but i just remember walking in and not being able to see people's faces because it was so many and they were so far or whatever like if you weren't close to me if you were all the way up there like a dot and i was just like oh wow you know it's just like i had a stunned moment yeah and then i know it all was going to be on tv so just kind of gave you a different kind of adrenaline like yeah. I never wanted to get embarrassed so <laughs> I was like there are millions of people that are going to yeah. see this um but for me like the big part of um my Olympic village was seeing the stars because all of a sudden you know they were sleeping in the same spaces that I was in they were experiencing the uncomfortable beds um <laughs> eating the same food um and just kind of watching them and you know, being, I wouldn't say in awe, but just admiring yeah. what they had done and how they had created this for themselves. Yeah. 
And I remember seeing uh, Gail Devers, and you know she's really famous for the long nails, and she was just sitting there eating some McDonald's fries. <laughs> and it's just like I eat fries, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy, you know. She's like one of the fastest people that ever lived. So it was like, it's just really cool. Um, everyone, you know, let's call it the Fit Village, because everyone yeah. is just like fit. You know, <laughs> they call they have these little shorts that they're really highlighting. I guess they call Hoochie Daddy shorts or whatever. <laughs> but you know, everyone was wearing and they had quads. Everyone was fit. Yeah. And I had never experienced that before, where like there was just not one fit person that yeah. was around you, and they were all trying to vine for that same thing that I was opportunity to change their life and to bring glory to their country. Yeah, how how was the was the ambiance in that space? You know, like everyone's there. It's kind of this unspoken like we're all here to take home gold for our country. We have mm-hmm. our, our respective flags on our backs, and you know, it's I, I don't want to bring dishonor, disrespect, embarrassment to my country. Like that is a high level of pressure, but ultimately you are all just people and competitors and friends. So what is that balance like? Is there kind of a subtle tension in the air? There's a sense of family, you know. I mean, obviously you have your people who you're, you know, you. You, you know we're going to be your main competitors. But I think once it's all said and done, you you realize that these are your peers, mm-hmm. you know, and you find a way to connect with them. Um, you know, you have your true rivals where people don't like each other, which is, as far as I know, wouldn't really, like, it wasn't a lot. Mm-hmm. You would see these persons at dinner eating with each other, joking or whatever. Um, I think in that moment we understand that, you know, nothing is really promised to anyone. Um, but if this experience was created for you, we also understand at some point it could be yours too, because either the person leaves the sport or maybe the next year you may be a little more fitter. So we, I think it's track and field athletes. We approach it humbly because any moment could be yours, Mm. you know? Um, and so I don't think there was a sense of envy, but more so, um, this is your moment. Let's celebrate you. Mm. And that's what I experienced the most. That's really special. It's good to know that it's not like an, there's no animosity and there's not like kind of a toxic environment because it is, I guess it is special, right? You work for four years and once you're there, you're there, like you're all Olympians and it's about, you know, who's going to show up on race day. Yeah. I think a good thing about sport as a coach, when I was a uh, cross country coach and track and field coach at SCAD, um, I realized that, wow, this sport I, I saw it from the angle of an athlete, but mm. as a coach, you see where somebody who's like, oh, you know, they, they have a lot of confidence, more confidence that is needed for a team dynamic. Mm-hmm. And then you have some guy, you know, you bring somebody in that, oh, you're not really like that. You're up there, but you're not number one. Mm-hmm. And you see how it doesn't cause them to bring more attention to the team, but it brings them closer mm. because they understand the struggle that, um, experiencing a common uh common goal also trying to get there in a common way how that brings them together whatever there's a sense of respect that comes along with that when somebody's able to overcome some of the things that you overcame you know that's why it's sometimes important to tell your stories about tragedy and all the other things that people deal with um because they really do help create a common ground so people can identify what you uh, what you've gone through, and they may be experiencing it too. And then there's this place where you kind of that relate the abilities to relate kind of creates like an almost unknown friendship. Mm. I completely agree. I think, you know, my my last episode of the podcast, I had um, one of my friends who went to study performing arts, and we talked about mm-hmm. the value of sharing stories and kind of 
whatever it may be, career, sport, all these things, you know, they're, they're noble aspirations, but ultimately the most important thing is connecting with other people, you know, sharing your story like we're doing yeah. right now. Like, yeah. um, it's creating a meaningful moment for myself, for yourself, for other people who are listening to it. Right. Yeah. You know, who, 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 it's impossible to know the impact it could have on one random person who's listening. So put it out there into the world and then see what comes of it. You know, had I not started this podcast, I don't know that we would have crossed paths ever, you know, yeah. like at all. Like yeah. I, I've graduated from school. I don't <laughs> exactly. know that I would come through your office mm-hmm. again, but this has been like an opportunity that came about by me sharing my story and then bringing <laughs> other people to share theirs. So, yeah. um, you touched on kind of transitioning to a coaching role. I'm curious how, what was the transition like going from the mindset of the athlete into the mindset of the coach? Um, because I do think that, you know, in my experience, not every great athlete makes a great coach you know we can mm-hmm. think we can look at examples like professional athletes like i'm not i'm not convinced that lebron james would be the best nba basketball coach mm-hmm. ever you know mm-hmm. we certainly know that like a michael jordan you know potentially the greatest of all time he has struggled as like an owner of a franchise and a coach like he doesn't thrive in that environment but he was clearly the best at the sport so mm-hmm. how does coming from the pinnacle of being the best athlete what was the transition to coaching and what did you have to ch- change about your mindset? Because obviously you held yourself to a very high standard. No. And do you try to hold your athletes to the same standard or? Well, you know, I also, I think once once I got in, when I first started, it was almost like you hold them to your standards. And then, you know, I think I had a great mentor. I mean, I think most people are don't want to get mentors, but I had a great mentor. Um, and I think that was brought to my attention that you're not – coaching you you're coaching individuals and they're all very different and you know um, they're in terms of their genetic capabilities you know they're not going to be able to approach it like each other or even you so you have to meet that person where they are and understand how your information your knowledge can possibly change the way they do things and make them better they say to teach someone is to cause a change in behavior and when I start to approach it like that it became so much easier. It was something that I wasn't extremely passionate about. Um, you know, uh, I think uh, some of the persons who are great coaches, it's like they study that in a whole other way. As an athlete, I studied it to improve myself. As a coach, like when I met a coach who knew all of my athletes, what their times were, and so many different other dynamics about them, and I realized that I was not as interested in those things, then I knew that am I really giving my athletes the best shot mm. of or the best parts of me. Um, so I do agree with you. Some athletes don't, not that I wasn't a horrible coach, but I didn't feel like um, I had, I was interested in giving that much yeah. of myself. Um, and so I made the decision to leave. I just, um, it, it was, it, it's extremely time consuming, even more time consuming as an athlete because yeah. it's a parental role almost. It doesn't f- come across like that, but it's like you are 100% their manager. Yeah. Um, and there's also a level of, there's two feelings you have. If they do well, it's an elation that is like undescribable. And then if they do horrible, there's a devastation that's undescribable as mm. well. <laughs> and I spell both, you know. Yeah. Um, but that whole building them up to that point where they're, realizing their full potential, um, experiencing who they could be in certain aspects of the uh, of, uh, competition um, was extremely rewarding. Um, but to do it year after year after year, 
I felt like there's another place that I could contribute to a young person's life than through coaching. How would you compare the, and it's not apples to apples, but how would you compare, I guess, the overall level of satisfaction from achieving your goal, like winning a championship gold or having an athlete win a championship gold that you coached? I was more excited for them than I was for me. For me, it's like, you know, you get excited for the moment, then you know that it's, there's a next thing mm. that you need to do. Whereas it's like when you are able to convey to somebody that if you do X, Y, Z, you can experience this, um, and you see that actually materialize, it's one of the best feelings. And it's, so I've never jumped for joy for myself. <laughs> I like, keep it calm, yeah. don't get carried away. But when I saw one of my athletes win, it's like this joy that comes up. It's almost like your kid, yeah. like, oh my God, you did it, you know? Um, and the control is, doesn't belong to you. You have to base. it's almost like, um, I think of Transformers, you know? You're hoping that this big machine that you are operating does what you tell it to do. Mm. Um, so you're part of the controller of it through your direction. But once you see them away from you, because the race, there's no more coaching. Is really, is that athlete emotionally mature enough? Are they going to execute some of the things that you uh, talked about? Um, are they going to um, really focus on the portions that they were weak so that they can know that um, this is probably going to make that race better? When you see that come together, you know, it really is just a um, very exceptional feeling that you get that you understand that your guidance, your teaching has caused them to approach the same thing that they struggle with in a different way. And as a result, they reach their full potential. Is that why you feel like with your current professional career, you decided to stay in academia? Like, yes. is that part of the same kind of message? Yeah. Because students, like, I came to college and I knew nothing. You know, I had an uncle that went to college, but he wasn't a part of my life. Um, just in a way he was, but he had died really young. So, I mean, I didn't really get what time I got to college. I didn't get that advice. Mm. Um, so I was so clueless when I got here. Um, and for me, the same way I empowered someone through actual, like, exercise, I can also, like, some person, this may be their first year in college or um, just their first experience, even though they may have parents that went to college, um, being able to show them a way to exist here that will make their experience seamless. And that's what I focus on. Um, as seamless as possible, because there's always something to new, things are always changing. Um, it was just another way to approach teaching and causing a change in behavior to happen. That's awesome. Um, how, as you transitioned out of athletics, you know, I think anyone who's involved in sports, and, and really it's kind of broader in life, you know, you, you become whatever you become, I am a world championship track athlete. I am a college lacrosse player. I am whatever. But at some point, that, that particular part of your journey ends. Mm -hmm. But at, for so, so long, and for you, it was from you know, 15, 16 till the end of your career, you defined yourself and found identity and, and achievement and satisfaction as I'm a track athlete. So how did you mentally shift your frame and say, that was part of my story and it will always be part of my story. But like, did you deal with a bit of an identity crisis stepping away from sport? Like, how was that? Uh, I think it was extremely challenging at first um, because it's just like, I think people are excited. Oh my God, you went to the Olympics and now they want to know how can you increase productivity? How can you make this process seamless and mm -hmm. whatever? It's just like, and if somebody in the office can do that and you can't, 
someone's like, great, you went to the Olympics, but you know, can you make this work in a way that is going to be profitable or beneficial for our company or our team or something like that? Um, and it's one of the harsh realities that I had to deal with. Um, wasn't a bad thing, yeah. but it was the truth. You know, it's the same thing as when a coach looks at putting a, a cross team together or a, a basketball team or a relay team. It's just like, you know, okay, great. I'm glad that we're from the same hometown, but how can we do this to make yeah. this the best that it could be? Um, but I did find that um, I may not have known as much as m most people knew, but the, a lot of things were very transferable, like work ethic, you know, commitment to seeing something done, goal setting, and seeing those goals met. You know, those things are transferable, and um, once you do have access and know the information, you know, it really works to your advantage, and I think that's been very helpful. Um, <clears throat> but I think people still do celebrate that about you for whatever reason. I mean, um, I don't know that they look at it in a way as them feeling less than, but more so, wow, you did this and you did it at a very high level, you know? Um, and I think I've built a lot of my friends through them being aware of that. Mm. You know, wow, this is cool. You did this really big thing, you know? Um, but for me internally, because yeah. I strive to be the best or whatever, mm. um, it was a challenge to not know as much as other people because they'd been doing it for 10 years or 15 years already and probably were younger than me um but you know over time you're able to kind of make the adaptation um if you're capable and interested in learning you can learn um but i think once i got over that you know it was fine yeah but most athletes uh when you're the star of, and the world's looking at you and then all you're just person in the office you know um i think uh it can have a mental toll on you Definitely. And it did the first couple of years, maybe first two years. Um, but those people became your friends, especially um, when you realize that they really invested in your growth and your development. And I've been fortunate to experience that. And then also from a physical perspective, you know, you go from becoming this, you know, 1% top athlete and performer. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, I could sit back and eat some McDonald's. Like, I don't have a, <laughs> I don't have the Olympics ca coming down the pipeline in four years. Like, how did you adapt your training style how have you kind of trended differently obviously like you're very physically built up i can't mm -hmm. imagine you were i mean from the track video obviously always very fit but mm -hmm. i imagine you've added muscle to your frame have you transitioned your training style do mm -hmm. you still run what's that like now so one of the well it depends on the individual um a diet was a part of my growth and my development but it wasn't a big thing i still ate a lot of things that I wanted to eat. Mm -hmm. There was no like pulling back for something for six weeks or nothing like that or any period of time. It was just like, if you want to go eat it, but you know you, know you got to get back on track. Um, <clears throat> so the pounds that comes on so quickly afterwards, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden you have this chiseled face and now you have a cheek um, and being able to accept that new image that you're creating, but um, find a way to appreciate who you are becoming and knowing that you're no longer that athlete anymore. Um, but you know, the a big part of working out is not just health and wellness for me, it's also stress reliever, uh, therapy for just dealing with the stresses of life and so forth. Um, so it was when I decided to go cold turkey, I realized that, you know, you can't just go you just can't just remove that from your life one hundred percent. You have to keep portions of that mm. around. And one of the challenges was finding the time to do it because no longer 
did you have a full day to commit to this? You had a full eight hour day of work and now you have to kind of go in the cycle of doing it over and over, fitting that small period of time where you can actually get a physical workout in is very challenging. And no, probably one of the reasons why I kind of pushed off having kids and stuff like that, because I was like, I don't have time, <laughs> you know? Um, but you make it work. Yeah. You make it work. You know, I always say if somebody takes eight hours and you have 24 hours in a day, um, and now I don't have kids, but one day I will, um, um, you deserve at least one hour, even if you do have kids. You, you deserve one hour. It's like, how good are you going to be to anyone or any mm-hmm. process if you can't take care of yourself? Yeah. You know, so I look at it as self-care so that I can be the best for whatever I'm doing. I completely agree. I mean, I think um, it's, I mean, it's, it's been a huge around a lot of what I'm talking about on the podcast and the program I'm working on, it, it is centered on like that, that self-confidence that comes from working mm-hmm. on yourself and transforming your body. I mean, if you wake up every day and you're not satisfied with what you see in the mirror, like that is a, that is a problem, not just from the physical sense, you know, mm-hmm. you may be healthy enough, but it's also, it's a mental toll. You need to be confident that you wear clothes and you're happy with how it looks mm-hmm. and you, and you feel good about it. And then investing in yourself, like you said, you can't pour into other people with an empty cup. Yes. You have to be able to spend exactly. the time and take it back, um, work on yourself so that you can give the best and be the best version of yourself for other people. Like if you truly love and care about other people in your life and, and certainly people do, you want to be the best version of you for them, not just yeah. for yourself. Like it's not exactly. a simply a selfish pursuit. Exactly. And I just like the more energy you have, um, it seems like I'll, I'll say one time I, I started taking pre-workouts. I'm not a big fan of pre-workouts. I've never used them or whatever, but it just, uh, I didn't, I don't continue to use them every blue moon. Like I feel like I just need an extra kick push, in the right? butt. Yeah. Um, but I just remember like energy is what makes you in a good mood. keeps you happy. I just remember my first time taking it and I just wanted to call everyone. I love you. you know, <laughs> how are you? What's going on? And I was just like, wow, why can't I be in this mood all the time? So once I incorporated something that's going to keep me with energy, keep me motivated, I realized that I was also kinder to people. Mm. Um, Not to say that that's the key, but I mean, the more energy you have, the more you're going to feel like you have the time to take the time to say, good morning, how are you? Or even listen to somebody as they deal with whatever they're dealing with. Um, So I I found that that was helpful in that regard. And then when making that transition to... um to real life, adult world, non-athletics, what, what would you say were like the three most important either lessons or transferable skill sets um, that you took from athletics that directly impacted and still impact your day-to-day life? Yeah. Um, so one thing I can say is relationships. Relationships make the world go round. You know what I'm saying? It's, uh, you know, the relationship I have with my coach, or my, the other people, it just made, even though it was grueling and it was very challenging, those relationships facilitated you know me having the desire to push past those things, um, but also get certain things done in my life. And I found that coming into the workplace, that's even more important. Being able to work across departmental lines and collaborate with other people, you know, they really hate help with your processes. You know, and making those be seamless so that you can do your job in a more efficient, uh, efficient way. Um, and, you know, enjoying what you're doing. You know, I find that <laughs> the more happy I am with what I do and the more purpose I find in why I'm doing what I'm doing um, creates, makes the day go by so much more faster. 
when I worked at SCAD as an admission advisor, um, I had a thousand students that I had to deal with. And it was overwhelming on, in a way that um, I couldn't have ever imagined. I didn't know so many people wanted my attention. <laughs> so I woke up one morning and I was like, I'm going to go crazy unless I figure my why. And my why was because I'm really creating an avenue so that these students can find the best opportunities that are available financially to cover their cost of attendance, uh, connect them with whatever resources we have available so that they can get through college as debt-free as possible. It's not, impo it's not fully possible, but whatever I can do to facilitate that, giving them the best information, empowering them, um, that became my why. So every time I went into the office, I already knew what am I going to do for Jennifer? What am I going to do for whoever? You know, how am I going to connect them with opportunities? Um, and really just uh, balance, work-life balance. It's like you cannot commit so much to one thing. You have to have your friends around you, people that care about you. You need to pay attention to them in a way, you know, you know, life is so fleeting. You know, I've lost my parents, I've lost other friends. Um, and sometimes you don't want to live with the regret that, oh, I wish I'd spend more time. So keeping that balance in your life allows you to really have great experiences with people. So that if it comes to a point where they're not living, you're not living in regret, you're living on the happiness and the joys that you've had with that individual. Mm -hmm. So That's really beautiful. Yeah. I, I completely agree. I mean, I think the way I describe it often is that like life is a people problem. Yeah. Um, it, it comes down to, I saw it, you know, transitioning, trying to exit college. The best way to get recruited is make a personal connection with mm -hmm. someone, right? Like you're, you don't just want to be a name on a sheet of paper. You want to be able to speak to someone in the company you're working towards and sell yourself as a person. It is an individual problem. I think scaling in life, like it's it, it, networking, whatever you want to call it. it it's mm -hmm. about making those human connections, sharing the story like we're doing now. Um, cause it makes life beautiful. It adds color to the image. It, yeah. it, it makes the story, um, meaningful, impactful. And, and yeah, it's easy to find a why when you know you're changing another person's life yeah. and whether you can have it in one person's life or thousands of people's lives through like college admissions. Yeah. And you spend such a large percentage of your day with these people. It's like, you want to be around somebody who, you know, you, who at least makes it like you have a good relationship with them. It's not always going to be a happy relationship, but the exchange is positive. You know, um, eight hours a day is a lot, you know, and to have to do that every year for 20 years. I've heard some people, they've been working for 25 years. Mm -hmm. um, you just hope that, you know, the people that they came into contact with, that they had great experiences with them to make those, um, days just seem more meaningful to them. Mm. I completely agree. Um, well, I guess we're getting close to the end of my <laughs> notes. Um, I'll give this some time. Do you have any questions for myself? I know that I'm not an Olympic champion, nor mm -hmm. am I as interesting as you are or as well-spoken, uh -huh. but do you have any, are you curious? I mean, I kind of just, for those that don't know, I basically, the connection was made. Uh, my boss was like, hey, you should reach out to Avard. I think he has an interesting story to tell. I Googled your name and I was like, well, the guy has a Wikipedia page. That's pretty cool. Um, so from there, I kind of just reached out over email. So didn't give you a ton of background on myself. So mm -hmm. is there anything you're curious about right now? You know, like I, we talked briefly when you came, um, you know, you said you did lacrosse, you know. Um, and I think that is something I always connect with because I realized that, well, I say, wow, this, like, as an athlete, you feel like runners really, who's focused on specifically running, 
are pretty fit, you know. Um, but as lacrosse play, I realized that soccer and they, they do a lot of running, but just I guess agility work and so forth is also helpful in terms of building other muscles and so forth. Um, and I think I immediately related to you because I understand that there's a lot of work that goes onto that, even though I have no clue what that world looks like. Um, but just kind of as you move through college and moving your professional, how do you feel like some of those skill sets have helped you mm. to kind of make that transition? Yeah, I mean, I think um, a big thing is just maintaining like physical health. We, are, we kind of already touched on that, just mm -hmm. being your f physical best self so that when you're at the office, you have high energy, you can mm -hmm. engage with people, be your best self. Um, so transition, like building, um, you know, lacrosse here at Georgia Tech is like a club sport. So mm -hmm. we weren't given a ton of resources that a, you know, varsity program that would have. So the benefit that comes from that, in my opinion, is that my training was predicated on me. I had to be, I had to carve out the time in my academic schedule mm -hmm. to go to the gym, train, in the weekends, whatever it may be, stretch before bed, learn how to teach myself nutrition. I, di I didn't get any help along the way. Mm -hmm. And that's not a complaint. That's all. I'm glad that that's the case because now as transitioning to adulthood, I don't have to, I'm not just being dropped off the edge with no help. You know, I, I figured it out over the past four or five years. Um, so that's a big one. I think more broadly though, um, team sports just kind of prepares you ultimately to just be a, an excellent collaborator. Mm -hmm. I think exactly. I was never... I was never the best athlete on the field. I was never the best player on the mm -hmm. field. Um, I certainly tried to be the best version of myself that I could be, but there mm -hmm. were always going to be guys faster, bigger, stronger, have been playing longer. Um, but I knew that there were a few, what was within my control was my work ethic. Did I train outside of the game? Mm -hmm. And on the field, I could be and always tried to be the best communicator I could be. You know, I think if you were to ask any of my teammates or coaches, like I was always yapping, like one of the loudest guys on the field mm -hmm. and not just in like the shit talk kind of like chirping sense, which I do enjoy. It's a fun part of sports, but <laughs> it's the best part. Of sports. <laughs> exactly. But outside of that, yeah. just being like kind of like the field general commander, like mm -hmm. getting people in the right places, making sure that we know the plays that's going on. Um, so being a, a good communicator on the field and in practice, giving feedback to coaches like, hey, I think so-and-so should be here. Mm -hmm. um, and learning those dynamics to have that peer-to-peer -peer level of communication, but also in authoritative, authoritative position, be able to talk to a coach, understand the balance of egos, and you know how do you approach giving critical feedback to someone above you as well as on a lateral level. Um, I think that directly applies to like the workforce, the real world. Um, yeah. It's been super helpful to have the confidence to communicate that way but also the kind of like skills and understanding, you know, if I, if I'm not careful with my words, when I approach one of my bosses about like mm -hmm. something that they didn't do so well, mm -hmm. it could potentially have repercussions, you know, in the sports world, if I didn't treat it correctly, am I going to lose playing time or my mm -hmm. coach is going to make me sprint, you know, like you don't want to piss someone who's above you off. Right. Yeah. And so balancing, understanding that they're just a person, they need to communicate, they have their sense of ego, all the stuff that they bring to it. But, um, yeah. So I think that the communication and collaborative aspect um, from team sports is the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. And then, like I said, that, that kind of like level of fitness and understanding that you need to bring your best body to whatever you're doing regardless. Yeah. Do you find like uh, the relationships that you've built through that means uh, through sport, do you find any of them being instrumental in terms of you moving up in your career mm. at this point well, in your life? My no, career but, is young, so yeah. <laughs> we're about a month and a half in uh, since graduating. Oh, but wow. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I have, it's uh, not, not a long journey, but certainly, yeah. I mean, I know that those guys that I spent, you know, the last week right after I graduated, we went out to Texas and spent that week making a championship run, um, falling short one game, unfortunately. But, you know, th those guys all have 
I could reach out to any of them, you know, like they're my brothers, they're mm -hmm. people that are going to be close friends for my life. Um, and those guys, what's really special about Georgia Tech specifically is that they're going to scatter across the world and be in really world changing positions at like the mm -hmm. top companies in the world. Yeah. And so I'm going to need, I'm going to be able to know those guys across the exactly. place. Um, and, and so like the network necessarily or is kind of like automatically built in in that sense. But yeah. I think like you said, the relationships make it special. So having those friends, having guys I know that I can call on for X, Y, and Z is really, really special. And because I am currently working so close to where I graduated and where I went to school, mm -hmm. I am close physically to a lot of those same people. You know, I moved in, in my apartment here in Atlanta, one of my roommates I played with before he graduated. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, I have this like network of people that know me for who I am and they know the value that I can provide. And so they, they mm -hmm. trust me and can lean on me in the same way that I know them, I know the value they can provide. And, and it's kind of reciprocated in that sense. Awesome, awesome. And I, obviously one of those relationships that you've built with your instructor, mm. did you work with him prior to starting this particular job? Or is it something that kind of, the relationship was established and then eventually you were able to kind of move into a situation where you could work with him? Um, it was honestly kind of a, a bit of a stroke of luck. Um, it was one of those emails that I don't know, you might have a hand in, but the emails that go to the all BME kind of student oh, okay. list. Yes. So one of those emails uh, mm -hmm. in my senior semester, you know, I was recruiting like mad, sending out applications kind of as much as I could because I was trying to get a job. And so one of those came across the email inbox and it was mm -hmm. just, you know, Jackson Medical looking for biomedical engineer. Didn't think too much of it, just sent the application. You know, at this point, I'm just kind of spraying and praying. Mm -hmm. um, but they eventually got back, started the interview process. And I mean, you know, James, a really, really incredible man. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's like so supportive of what I'm doing here on the side outside of like the actual mm -hmm. um, title that I have. And I think that's such an impressive sign of control over his own ego. I think so yeah. many people in authority might be made insecure if they know that their employee has like a side hustle or is working on something outside of work and they're mm -hmm. like well you need to dedicate time to you know what i'm asking you to do but he's been fully supportive you know he introduced me to you yeah. um and he's you know continually like giving me feedback on what i'm working on so um it's been really incredible i think like you said life is a people problem and i'm working where i am now with them because of how incredible that team is and how incredible he is as a man so um, lucky that I came across him kind of randomly. It didn't come through lacrosse yeah. or anything like that, but yeah. it's cool that it was kind of the Georgia Tech family to start. Exactly. Because sometimes it isn't an immediate relationship that you have, but it's just association, mm -hmm. like relationship through yeah. having had similar experience. Like um, one of the things that they used to teach me in recruiting is just like, when you go these places, try to remember an experience that you have. So when you're speaking to you know, students, prospect students, like, you know, if you call, hey, I know whatever street and, you know, immediately that, that's a connection with you mm -hmm. an individual. So being a part of an organization and being able to push that out sometimes is sometimes the real icebreaker in terms of a person connecting to you and understanding that, wow, we do have similar stuff going on and could be the catalyst for opening a door for you. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Well, I have one last kind of closer question that I ask guests. Um, still trying to develop this. We're on episode <laughs> six of the podcast, so trying to find the lane. But the question is, if someone asked you what the most important lesson you learned along your path to becoming the best version of yourself is, what would that be? And then what is a quote that you either often go back to or live by or kind of divine, defines your mindset and worldview? Um, live in the moment. You know, um, I, I think that's something that I'm constantly chasing to enjoy the small victories, you know, um, because nothing is guaranteed but the moment. Um, and if you don't find a way to appreciate that 
you know, when you get to the big stage, sometimes it's kind of difficult to appreciate the big stage. But when you have a clear understanding of everything that it took to get there, that's when, when you see people cry. I've, I haven't cried really, but I mean, like, even if it's a big smile, it's like that, there's so much that is behind that because you understand the process it took to get to that point. Hmm. Um, and I, I guess um, one of... One of the biggest quotes that I've learned is actually from Mike Tyson. It's just like, um, I never thought I would ever get anything deep from Mike Tyson. I was never a boxing fan. Mm. But he said, uh, you know, in order to be the best, you have to have discipline. Without discipline, you are nothing. You have to do what you hate like you love it. And that's mm. going to set you apart from, you know, just being just a regular old thing or actually reaching your goal and making it come into actuality. Wow. Well, that was really well put. Um, I appreciate your time. And I guess I'll offer this time up. Is there, how can people follow you? What are you working on right now? Anything you want to particularly plug? I don't know how much of a captive audience we've had. But, <laughs> but for those that are listening. Um, for, for me right yeah. now, it's just Instagram and Facebook. My Instagram is Avard Monkor, A-V-A-R-D-M-O-N-C-U-R. And my Facebook is the same. Um, I do write music. I haven't uh, published anything, but I'm in the process of kind of talking that uh, cool. more so spiritual gospel music kind of thing. Yeah, uh, I've been doing that for the past several years. I'm not the singer. I do have a singer. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so hopefully in, um, in the future, I'll be able to post some information about that once we decide cool. what we're going to do with the work. Yeah. Well, awesome. Avard, it has been excellent to um, spend time with you today. Thank you for carving the time out. Um, it's been really, really awesome. For those that have made it this far, like I said at the beginning, you can follow along kind of what we're working on here with the podcast and the program I'm building um, at Vitruvian Gentleman on Instagram and follow myself at Z-D-S-C-H-E-N-K-E-N on Instagram. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to DM me um, podcast and any thoughts you have. Uh, I'm looking to have future guests in, in, in the future, so suggest people you would like to hear, um, questions you would like me to ask them. Um, and I guess that brings us to the end. Uh, your time is your most valuable resource. Thank you for spending a little of it with myself. And Avard, Memento Mori, and I will catch you on next episode of the Vitruvian Man podcast. And if he fails, at least fails while daring great, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls know neither victory nor defeat.